Even small amounts of alcohol can be harmful to blood pressure and the heart. A brand new report on alcohol and blood pressure summarizes the best scientific research and provides a state-of-the-art overview of alcohol's substantial causal role in the genesis of hypertension and related diseases. Hello, from Movendi International, I am Mike Dünnbier. Warm welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. This is the first episode of our third season. Thank you so much for tuning in. The Alcohol Issues podcast is an original production by Movendi International. It's a show about current alcohol issues of global importance. Through in-depth conversations with policymakers, community leaders and scientists, we explore alcohol policy issues, discuss landmark scientific studies and expose the alcohol industry. For the first episode in our third season, we discuss the findings and conclusions from the brand new and groundbreaking report about alcohol and blood pressure. And there is no better guest to do this with than Dr. Timothy Naimi. He is currently the director at the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada. Tim has worked as a physician for the US Indian Health Service and as a senior epidemiologist with the ALGOL team at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC in the United States, and as a professor in the Boston University Schools of Public Health and Medicine. Tim's research interests include ALGOL epidemiology, the health effects of substance use and the impact of ALGOL and cannabis policies. Tim is part of an international group of researchers that come together every year to dive deeply into a specific topic of alcohol research. They conduct extensive research to identify relevant published science on the selected topic. And then the group of researchers reviews and summarizes the search results. This analysis is then published in a report. And this year the report deals with alcohol and blood pressure and we have the chance to talk with uh, Tim Naimi about the key findings, conclusions and what it all means. We recorded our conversation on March 6th, 2023. Hi Tim and uh, warm welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. I'm really happy that uh, you have taken the time to talk with me today. And so warm welcome to you. Oh, Mike, well, thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, we will talk about the key findings and some reflections you have about those findings of a new research report um, dealing with alcohol and blood pressure. So maybe, Tim, we can just start by... How is this, how are you working in this research uh, or in this group of researchers? How is this report coming about? Um, what is your impression there? Well, the reports, uh, this is, as you mentioned, this is another uh, in a series of reports that we've done annually, where we have the luxury of taking a group of researchers and doing what we call a deep dive into a single topic in alcohol. And most of the time when I write a paper or you know, it's, you have to get, you know, focus on one or two very specific questions, or even, you know, you're focusing on the 
elephant's trunk or his tail or his, you know, and this one we can take a little bit more of a step back. We have more people and time. And what we try to do for all of these reports, this one being about high blood pressure and, uh, or just blood pressure and hypertension, which is the uh, condition, if you will, associated with high blood pressure, is to be able to synthesize across a variety of different types of evidence, you know, so we can look at okay, what is the observational studies? Are there any randomized studies? What about the animal studies? What about the physiological experiments? And this is really great because when you do this, you can kind of, um, you know, any monkey can review, you know, six papers, but when you uh, try to look at different, we call them lines or avenues of research, and then you put them together and say, is this telling a consistent story or, or, um, or are there some gaps here or some things that don't make sense? And as a preview, I'm happy to report that the, with respect to alcohol and blood pressure, all these different types of evidence are giving a relatively uh, consistent uh, sort of a broad picture and uh, synthesis. Yeah, now I think you have given a really great teaser. Now I'm really interested to uh, get into this. I think it's really good to hear that we can have I think, high confidence in the findings of the report, given who the researchers are and given, uh, as you said, Tim, the deep dive that you are doing. Uh, I can also say I can uh, put the link to the uh, series of reports that you have produced over the years into the show notes. You already also mentioned some of the definitions of the terms, and, and I'm also happy to get into this, but maybe... To introduce our conversation here uh, today, Tim, why does the issue of blood pressure matter in the context of alcohol harm? Why did you and your colleagues decide to write a research report about this issue, blood pressure and hypertension, as it relates to alcohol? Yeah, on the one hand, you can say, uh, Mike, that this is a relatively narrow focus compared to some of our other reports on alcohol in youth or moderate drinking, for example. But... Um, we chose the one on alcohol and blood pressure because there are so many different types of research that inform this. And even though you can say, well, high blood pressure, this is one condition. It is a, what I like to call a pluripotent risk factor for a wide variety of diseases. So it's not just about blood pressure, right? But it's about um, coronary heart disease, like heart attacks. It's about congestive heart failure. It's about Uh, atrial fibrillation, which is the irregular heartbeat. It's about strokes. Um, there's a variety of diseases. And then also high blood pressure interacts with other important conditions, such as overweight, such as diabetes, to uh, and cigarette smoking, for example, to create even more risk. So yes, this is a high blood pressure is a risk factor into the heart and soul of many lethal uh, diseases. And I believe that You go, it's always interesting to, there are different ways to account for it by, but by some estimates, uh, high blood pressure accounts for maybe upwards of 20% of, of all deaths worth worldwide, either through direct or sort of indirect effects. Uh, I never like to get too hung up on single numbers, but it, this is a major, a big ticket item when it comes to global uh, morbidity and mortality. Yeah, I think this is a super helpful 
explanation. I think you are absolutely right there. Uh, I found it, of course, a little bit more challenging to read this report than some of the others that you have mentioned. The, the social harm from alcohol, you have an excellent report or alcohol and young people. Even the report on alcohol and the coronavirus uh, pandemic, I think they are all in the ballpark uh, that, that I know, so to say, in alcohol policy advocacy. And this one, of course, is uh, much more medical. So thanks for introducing this. And I think um, uh, we can get into some of the details now. So uh, as I'm alluding to this, this podcast is mainly followed by people that are interested in alcohol policy issues. And so mm. I wanted to ask you, Tim, if you could give a short overview of um, what, how do you define blood pressure? What is hypertension? There is a really nice image uh, in the report where this kind of multi-potent risk factor is very well explained. So uh, can you share this analysis with the listeners, please? Sure. Well, we all need blood pressure. Uh, pressure, you know, uh, all things flow from areas of high pressure to low pressure. Our heart in order to pump blood around our body, needs to generate blood pressure. So that's good. When the blood pressure is zero, the person is dead. So we all need some level of blood pressure. But above a certain level of blood pressure, it is not, uh, not healthy. There are two numbers when people go to the doctor, they get a blood pressure, they say, okay, your blood pressure was 125 over 78. The top number is the pressure usually expressed in millimeters of mercury that is observed when the heart is contracting. And the lower number is the diastolic blood pressure. That is the pressure when the heart is in relaxation uh, in, in, uh, in diastole. So those are the two numbers. Um, you know, traditionally, the definition for high blood pressure has been 140 or higher or 90 on the lower number or higher. But now it's being sort of in many places or contexts such as people with diabetes modified to 130 over 80. Keep in mind, Mike, that any of these definitions are used as a matter of convenience, that there's not something magic about 130 or 140, but these are generally levels above which you start to see the risk of X and Y and Z start to go up. And so in medicine, you have to have certain kind of conventions to be able to function and to follow guidelines. And so those that's all it is. And I think one thing, the last thing I'll say with this very long answer is that blood pressure, the concept of blood pressure is a continuous measure. Whereas high blood pressure, otherwise referred to as hypertension or HTN, some people abbreviate it, is a, is a sort of a binary outcome. You know, you have a, this chronic condition or you don't. But again, keep in mind that some of the research that we review looks at the effect of alcohol on blood pressure as a continuous measure and others looks at it as uh, the relationship between alcohol and having uh, high blood pressure, yes, no. And as I listen to you, Tim, I feel like I have to ask a follow-up question and that might be a little bit uh, more uninformed because I am uh, still rather young um, and I know uh, my parents, my parents-in-law, they are sometimes uh, struggling with uh, high blood pressure. But can you explain a little bit more what's, at least for me, many listeners might know already, what's the problem with hypertension or why is hypertension such a big problem as you already earlier alluded to? Sure. So if you think about it, the 
high blood pressure can either be a cause or a reflection of problems. So that's mm -hmm. one thing. When you, if you think about the heart, it, it takes uh, metabolic energy, it takes muscular energy to generate blood pressure. So in a very simplistic and direct way, if you are having a very high blood pressure, your heart is working hard, uh, mm -hmm. harder than it otherwise would need to, let's say if your blood pressure were lower, this can lead to um, thickening of the, of the, of the heart muscle and an actually worse function. You know, we think of, you know, being strong as having big, thick muscles, but actually being strong is having strong muscles that are also supple and able to relax easily. And so if, if I go to the gym and I just lift massive weights all day, then you become like muscle bound. And that's what can also, which is not a good thing. Um, luckily this is a, only an audio interview because so I'll just tell you not untruthfully that my physique is perfect, but I'm, you don't want to be too muscle bound, right? You don't want to be, you have to have some muscle, but it don't. So, so the heart can get actually weaker, even though it's thicker. And then the other thing is the impact on the blood vessels and the vasculature, uh, under high pressures of, um, high blood pressures, you have greater, it's called shear forces, stresses on the blood vessels. This can promote things like heart attacks and strokes or what's called peripheral vascular disease, either narrowing or rupture of arteries in the body. So those are some of the, the major kinds of um, uh, problems. This is super helpful for me because as I read the report and as I listened to you, I started also reflecting about what you already mentioned, Tim, that there is such a high global burden uh, from high blood pressure or hypertension But in, in my mind, maybe in the public's mind, uh, other diseases, I think cancer is one of the diseases where we probably are literate about, we're a little bit fearful about, we know so many things. But as you explain what hypertension is, that it can be a cause, but also a reflection of problems and, and what that means in our body, I think it becomes more graphic, more palatable what it is that uh, we are discussing here. So, and maybe with this, um, we can go back to what you already mentioned. What is the global burden then of hypertension? You said you don't want to get hung up too much on uh, specific figures, but you had a figure already of 20% of all deaths are directly or indirectly um, related to hypertension. So what do we know about the global burden caused by hypertension? Yeah, those are mainly, uh, those deaths mainly stem from um, uh, heart, uh, heart attacks related to hypertension, uh, congestive heart failure, or uh, strokes that are related to hypertension. So hypertension is one of the leading risk factors for coronary artery disease, i.e. heart attacks or angina. Um, and it's also the, the predominant risk factor for strokes. Uh, there are two kinds of strokes. One is the ischemic stroke, that, which is like almost like a heart attack in the brain where you have a um, like a blood clot forms in the stroke. That other kind of stroke, the hemorrhagic or the bleeding stroke, is where there's literally a the blood vessel in the brain bursts. And high blood pressure or hypertension is a risk factor for both types of strokes. So those are the main links. Heart failure, heart attacks, and strokes would be the kind of, I would say, are the three biggies for how hypertension uh, contributes to the global burden of disease. 
And how big is this uh, burden? Is is there more to say than uh, the twenty percent of of all deaths? Um, there may be more to say, but I <laughs> I don't have much more to say about it. It's big. I, I like to paint. Yeah, a, yeah I, I mean, I'm actually did not prepare specifically kind of beyond that, but it's a big contributor. The other thing I would add then, Mike, is beyond the deaths, we have to think of um, death is mortality. In medicine, of course, and public health, we also think about morbidity, that is problems. So many strokes, for example, may not result in death, but they result in significant morbidity. So that's like disability from, you know, let's say losing language or you know, losing mobility from a problem. So it's not just the deaths, but um, things related to, to strokes and heart disease also have a big impact on morbidity. So other conditions that are not fatal and also to the quality of life. You know, if you have congestive heart failure, for example, um, then, then that can be very disabling, you know, really limiting one's activity. So those are the two big dimensions, morbidity yeah. and mortality. And I, th I think this is uh, also really important that you talk about the morbidity burden, because then we are, of course, speaking about health system burden, the services that people get and the services that people are maybe not getting, um, because uh, this is then expensive for our societies to invest in this. And there's probably an inequality dimension uh, if we look at high income versus low and middle income countries. But I think um, what you are explaining here gives us a picture. So now I understand that uh, hypertension is a cause and a risk factor in its own right for these uh, three bigger types of heart diseases that, that you have explained. So I, I think I grasp the severity, the extent of the issue, the global health issue that we are talking about. And now I think it's time to add alcohol as the risk factor Or I think in the report, you actually call it the causal factor for hypertension. So maybe we start this uh, conversation with another, you know, hopefully not too simple question, Tim. But why is it important to know about alcohol's effect on blood pressure in general and then hypertension in mm. a more particular sense? Well, uh, you know, starting off, we know that alcohol is a major Uh, behavior-related and preventable cause of uh, morbidity and mortality and social harms in the general population. So we know, again, before we even get to hypertension, that when you in public health, you judge a problem by its magnitude, how big of a problem is it, and by what I like to call its preventable fraction. So mm -hmm. the magnitude is very big, causes big problems. The preventable fraction is very high because through public health policies or clinical interventions or other, you know, other means, uh, people actually, many people are able to and do change their behavior with respect to, to alcohol. So when you have a big problem and a high preventable fraction, that is very important. If you have even a big problem, but you can't prevent it or you can't do anything about it, then you go to church and you pray. And you should still go to church and pray. But anyways, if you're that inclined, I'm, I'm having fun. But anyways, so we have a big problem. Now, as we know, we overlay a big problem of alcohol use, especially, you know, heavy drinking. 
and then we overlay that on top of another big problem, uh, which is which is which is high blood pressure. And um, when we think about alcohol, now I want to draw a little diagram in our heads. We can also look and think about the direct contributions of alcohol. Think of a little bottle or something with a arrow going towards like higher blood pressure or high blood pressure, blood pressure. We should also then think about that bottle of alcohol and its direct connections to some of those big ticket items that I talked about. So congestive heart failure, um, uh, coronary heart disease, strokes, and even things like atrial fibrillation, which is the irregular heartbeat, which can also lead to other problems, including strokes. So we, again, we have direct effects of alcohol on blood pressure, as well as the additional risk of alcohol further impacting those um, endpoint conditions of high blood pressure, if you will. And we have to think about both of those. We have to think about both of that stuff, all that stuff in our little diagram. You know, in the same way that we might think of um, cigarette smoking as contributing to yeah, so there, there's direct effects and then other effects on those out, outcome conditions. I find this uh, very helpful. I actually have heard this uh, for the first time now to think about the magnitude of the problem and then the preventable fractions. Um, and uh, I think this is really interesting. And then, of course, in our conversation, we have two of those, um, alcohol in its own right and uh, hypertension. So yeah. thanks uh, for and, and I should this. I should add, Mike, that that hypertension is also very very treatable. Um, you know, uh, so this is where both of these things, at some level, are have a high proportion of some combination of being preventable and or treatable. Mm -hmm. So again, when you put these things together, there's there's this is high uh, public health value here. This is a great point because. We look at these massive public health and, as you said earlier, social problems, uh, but we can prevent much of it or could. And then we can also help people affected by it through effective uh, screening and treatment. So I think we get the urgency of uh, the topic of this report then. Uh, can you in the next yeah. step explain what is alcohol's causal role then in high blood pressure? How does it work? Sure. I, I should add I should add one other thing besides the burden and the preventable fraction. There's another concept, which is like, are we doing very are we doing what we can do already? Because if it was a big problem and we were already doing everything we can do for prevention, then again, we would have done the best. We could wash our hands and go home and have uh, supper. But we're not doing very well with either, in my opinion. Uh, as we know, uh, alcohol is um, still widely uh, consumed heavily, particularly. And uh, a lot of our public policies are suboptimal and we have limited um, screening and treatment resources uh, in the clinical level. And then when we come to hypertension, we, again, we do a pretty good job screening for high blood pressure in the office, but even I think a lot of physicians or medical providers don't really think of um, 
alcohol as an important contributor to high blood pressure. Like they would immediately, for someone with high blood pressure, they would ask about smoking and exercise and these sorts of things. Um, but I'm not sure how good of a job they would do asking about alcohol or recognizing alcohol as a possible contributor to someone's high blood pressure, uh, particularly for people whose blood pressure is difficult to control. What is alcohol's causal role in hypertension? I ask if you can explain how that works. Oh, gosh. Well, you should have had, uh, uh, you know, for this one, I'll do uh, hopefully an acceptable job. You know, Frida Dankhart, who's on this panel, is a really, uh, she's a physician and she's a expert in, in cardiovascular physiology and she does all kinds of lab studies. But um, let's just keep this uh at the level that I'm at, which is that basically alcohol consumption, particularly uh, drinking to the point of impairment or higher levels of consumption, or really um, it leads to basically stiffening of blood vessels in animal models and in like physiology in the laboratory. Uh, stiffening can be kind of of two types. One is the, the more like, again, even your blood vessels have a layer of smooth muscle around them. So again, where that muscle kind of gets over bulky, so it's not as stretchy as before. And also alcohol promotes uh, sort of inflammatory changes that also affect the lining of the uh, blood vessels. This is called the endothelium. The endothelium is the most important Uh, thing in our body that you've never heard of. So that's the lining of blood vessels. In order to prevent heart attacks and strokes, you want to have a nice, like a nice clean endothelium, like the baby's bottom, so to speak, right? But when, as we get older and we smoke and drink too much or have lots of, you know, nice cheeseburgers, uh, you know, that endothelium becomes unhealthy. It's more prone to um, having atherosclerotic plaques or to ripping. When these kind of ripping events happen, that's when um, platelets are released and you can have clots forming and things like strokes and heart attacks occurring. So basically the main idea is that alcohol leads to both a stiffening of the overall blood vessels, as well as a um, detracts from the health of that uh, endothelium. And um, yeah, so it's That's the main, yeah. the main mechanism there. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And uh, I mean, we can check in with uh, Frida and see whether you have done a good job. But for me, this is, yeah. uh, this is a good explanation. I, I get it, uh, these two dimensions. And I just wanted to ask, you have mentioned this earlier. So is this coming from heavy episodic alcohol use or is it coming from uh, cumulative effects of, you know, steady alcohol use can you exclude one or uh, how how is alcohol consumption then um, affecting the blood vessels in our bodies that's a great question and I, and i think it's probably a combination of both uh you know interestingly you can do in the laboratory with animals or humans you can dose them with different amounts of alcohol actually at low doses of alcohol um hang on i'm just going to cough here At low doses of alcohol, sometimes you can actually have a, a lowering of blood pressure for several hours. Uh, but with higher with higher amounts of alcohol, say binge drinking, what you call epi heavy episodic drinking, um, 
it, it basically, you see it acutely raise blood pressure. So this is a short-term effect, although it may last for a day or two after that. Um, so that's in particular why this binge drinking, for example, is a strong risk factor for both strokes and heart attacks, maybe due to some of that acute raising of blood pressure. Um, you know, for, in terms of the, the, the effects of, of making the blood vessel stiffer, that's probably more of a long-term proposition. Although it could be due to repeated acute effects. It's like if you, let's say, if you drink more than a few drinks on a regular basis, think of that as like going to the gym four times a week and making your muscles too stiff and bulky, right? So it can be uh, an accumulation of multiple acute effects, as well as just high average consumption, clearly over two drinks, two Swedish drinks per day at that level, above that level, there's a very clear relationship between um, alcohol consumption and higher blood pressure, as well as that outcome of hypertension. Um, it may be that that effect also, there's evidence that that effect may start from above zero, but I would say that in the, the evidence is very clear that above two drinks per day on average, um, blood pressure and alcohol are very strongly and positively related to one another. And then any kind of uh, binge drinking or heavy episodic drinking leads to direct spikes in blood pressure that again, can last from many hours to days. Thanks for this explanation. And as I listen to you, I think when we talk about alcohol and the human heart and the vessels, how the heart pumps and, and so on, there is always an elephant in the room, isn't there? And that is uh, the uh, myth that alcohol is actually good for the heart. And I think there is a really important point in the report that says there is increasing scientific skepticism for the once widely held belief that low and moderate levels of consumption, alcohol consumption, can provide protection from cardiovascular disease. I wanted to ask you if you can explain this more. Like, Why is it, uh, why do you write about increasing scientific skepticism? Why do you call it the once widely held belief? What do we know now about uh, alcohol and the heart health in general? Well, um, actually this year in 2022, the World Heart Federation came out and basically said the same thing. I think um, there's a few reasons for this. One is that, you know, most of the studies that we have, or really all of the studies that we have about alcohol and heart health are not like the kind of randomized Uh, sort of gold standard type studies that we do with say a new pharmaceutical product where we give half the people the product and then half the people um, sort of a fake product and see what happens. So when you don't have these kind of uh, highest quality studies, there's lots of challenges in interpreting the findings because people who drink small amounts of alcohol who've done so on a long term basis, you know, into their 50s and then they get recruited into a study. These are not Uh, t you know, typical people, right? They're, uh, they tend to be people, you know, like me, or, you know, I don't know, I'm not saying that, but, you know, they tend to be people who have, you know, they didn't become alcoholic, they didn't uh, develop a problem with drinking and then quit. Uh, you know, they've managed to maintain a low stable amount. These people tend to be, um, you know, have uh, better education, they have nice jobs, they're uh, 
maybe they have a dog that wags their tail when they see them. So, <laughs> so, so sometimes uh, moderate drinking is a reflection of good social status and not the cause of it. So that's one of the things. Uh, the other thing, anyway, so we could go, this is covered a lot in our report on moderate drinking. I mean, that said, I think we also need to be fair that at low levels of consumption, there's not um, clear evidence that there's much of an increase in risk. There is a certain kind of genetic study that shows that increased risk starts, you know, above zero. But even there, the increase in risk would be very low. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, based on previous and more current evidence that by the time you're over, clearly at least over a drink per day on average, your risk is increasing, right? The, maybe the scientific debate would be, where did your risk start off from at like a little, like half a drink a day, but above a drink a day, your risk is, is increasing. So, you know, when you put it all together, um, you know, if there is minimal effect, it's at just the very low levels. And then, you know, I think the evidence is pretty clear and consistent that above above a drink a day, for example, uh, that there's increased uh, risk for a variety of problems. And now I think uh, I understand uh, the combination of alcohol as a global health uh, risk factor plus hypertension as a global health risk factor, alcohol as a risk factor for a hypertension or as a causal factor, as, as you have called it, as you write in the report. And uh, in this context, you already, uh, I think, uh, talked about this kind of the magnitude of the problem, the preventable fractions, and whether or not we are doing something with the treatment or prevention uh, measures that, that are at our disposal as societies. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more uh, to discuss this a little bit more. Um, what is or where do you see the untapped potential for, for example, improved clinical practices or the untapped uh, potential for broad-based population-wide policies to prevent ill health and uh, to prolong life for, for people? Okay. Well, in uh, in the report, we actually have recommendations for, you know, one of the things I like about these report is that we take, uh, we don't just take the individual level perspective, we try to take a public health approach, and we'll also talk to people. And in this report, we actually talk to three groups of people, we talk to uh, governments and society, number one, We talk to healthcare systems and health professionals and providers, number two, and we, then we talk to individuals, number three. So for, uh, you know, I want to talk about one other thing before I talk about these three sets of recommendations. Sure. There's something very important and, and because it, it pertains to why we have three levels of recommendations. There's something called the, in public health, called the prevention paradox prevention paradox. What does that mean? Well, if, you know, for people who aren't trained in public health, they might think, okay, if I'm going to address high blood pressure, my top priority should be on treating everyone with really, really, really high blood pressure. Uh, and like not worrying so much about everyone else. Uh, so let's say that the cutoff for high blood pressure is 130 or 140. You say, well, okay, we have $10 to spend. Let's try to find everyone who's got 
blood pressure above 200 and treat them. Whereas my, you could also spend the $10 treating everyone starting at 140, but maybe not do such a big, you know, intensive job with a high-end group. The idea that I'm trying to drive at is that you would want to do the second thing because whenever you have a problem in a society, be it high blood pressure or alcohol consumption, right? Of course, there's a group of people with really, really high blood pressure or who really, really drink a lot. However, what you have to understand is that there are always a lot more people with those high blood pressures, but in the lower ranges and who drink in ways that increase their risk of problems, but who aren't the heaviest, heaviest drinkers. Because those people are also at risk and because they're so much more numerous than the, you know, the alcoholic person lying in the street, you have to start there. And also the benefit there is you are preventing people you are intervening before those people like who maybe have high blood pressure migrate into the very, very highest risk zone. So you have a prevention function as well as a statistical imperative that when you multiply the risk times the population, you actually have more people dying of high blood pressure between 130 or 140 and 200 than you do from people dying when it's over 200. Um, I don't know if I've uh, totally ruined your podcast by this description. No. <laughs> this is great I, I, because I think it. this is a super helpful um, uh, use of the prevention paradox in this uh, context because it brings us back to what you started the conversation with, this yeah. multipotent, I think you call it, yeah, pluripotent risk factor. Yes. So if you make an intervention, as you said, and, and looking at the statistics, we actually help uh, protect people from Uh, developing the even more severe heart disease uh, categories that, that you talked about. So yeah. I think this makes absolute sense. So, and, and, and Mike, the reason why I went into that lengthy and somewhat poorly done description of the prevention paradox is when it comes to making recommendations, it does not, it is ineffective just to have people trying to track down and uh, treat the people with just the very high blood pressure or the very high use of alcohol. So that's yeah. why we have this multi-dimensional approach with first a, an emphasis on public health systems, then on clinical systems and clinical prevention systems, and finally on advice or help for dis, you know suggestions for individuals. So in order to reduce the alcohol burden, Uh, just in general or specifically due to high blood pressure, uh, you need to reduce the uh, consumption in the population. Uh, th that's the only way to do it. Um, so that means things like broad-based strategies like making alcohol a bit more expensive through taxation, making it a bit less available through licensing restrictions or hours of sale and uh, effective uh, minimum age laws, these sorts of things. Um, so that's the first thing. So just these general population measures are probably would have the biggest impact on sort of sort of shifting what we say if we if you think of a curve where there's different levels of consumption on the bottom of the graph, you you want to move everyone to the left, like shift everyone towards less consumption. That's what these big population uh, strategies do. Mm -hmm. uh, you also want to, Through public health mechanisms, um, you can also like raise awareness. Uh, 
of the relationship between alcohol and blood, high blood pressure. And you can also um, make sure there's enough funding and resources in the system to uh, detect and address, you know, unhealthy or high, high risk alcohol use, whether or not the person is uh, an, meets criteria for alcohol dependence or not. In terms of the healthcare systems and health providers, you know, we still have a lot of work to do I, in most developed countries. I can speak to US and Canada, but I, my colleagues, uh, Sven Andreasen and Frida, uh, you know, we don't have uh, very good screening practices often for alcohol consumption in primary care. Again, the purpose of modern screening is not just to identify people with, you know, to use the colloquial term alcoholism or alcohol dependence or a heavy alcohol use disorder. The goal is to identify people, for example, who binge drink or who drink in total amounts that increase their risk of harms. So yeah. we need to do better in terms of our screening. Um, part of this is that healthcare systems that physicians themselves aren't comfortable um, screening for alcohol problems. It's also partly because if they find that somebody has a, um, severe alcohol use disorder and may need specialty treatment that they know that there's not maybe enough resources for that. So they kind of mm -hmm. like, you don't want to kind of uncover a problem that you can't quite deal with. And the other thing is that physicians themselves um, tend to drink, you know, so a lot of physicians, quite honestly, are ambivalent about, you know, what, you know, maybe they're thinking, okay, this person drinks in a heavy way. That's kind of what a way I drink. But I'm not an alcoholic. If I'm telling this, you know, like, I don't know, I think there's just lots of, uh, uh, you know, being a physician, I know there's lots of ambivalence about um, the confusion also between identifying risky drinking and alcohol dependence. So, um, but we definitely need more resources and better screening um, things. We also need better treatments. And then in terms of individuals, uh, you know, it's for people who decide to, who, who, who drink is to kind of uh, reduce their consumption, to reduce their risk of a wide variety of, um, of harms, including blood pressure. Um, uh, and really the key thing there is, is reducing overall consumption, but in particular avoiding binge drinking. So people who are drinking four or more drinks per occasion, um, that's really bad for health and, and not good for high blood pressure. That's very important. And then the other thing is for patients who have high blood pressure, again, a lot of uh, patients and even physicians are not aware. There's actually, we look, reviewed 36 um, studies that looked at the impact of people who drink an average of two Swedish drinks per day or more with high blood pressure. Uh, ran, these are randomized like clinical studies, high quality studies that when you um, randomize people who drink uh, as little as two drinks a day or more with high blood pressure to, to trying to drink less, that you have really good effects on blood pressure lowering. So particularly for people who have high blood pressure, particularly for people who are on medications but still struggling to control their blood pressure, if they drink, they should really try uh, cutting back or even, you know, stopping drinking, at least as a, as a trial, in, you know, to see if that has a good effect on lowering blood pressure. So these are some of the, the strategies that we discuss in the, in the report. And sorry for that, it was a bit of a long answer. 
This is absolutely fantastic because I can see how all these things actually fit together, that the government uh, invests in these population level measures to reduce population level alcohol consumption and so the exposure to all the risks uh, that come with this. Overall, I think when you talk about uh, government investing in awareness raising, public education, uh, that speaks uh, to the effect. And I think that it has both on the individual, like the patients or um, uh, even the people in the healthcare system, right? The physicians that you also talked about, that we all need to learn more about alcohol. Uh, we all have these myths in, in our heads. And so I think uh, this uh, really makes sense. And of course, for me, it's very strong to just imagine that there are patients who have this or who are exposed to even greater risk and they don't get uh, good advice right now. They are not protected in a societal way uh, because we have so much alcohol marketing and so low prices in most uh, societies. But then at the primary care level or when they receive treatment, uh, then they are not getting the advice that they should get uh, to achieve the health outcomes that they want. So for me, this is... Uh, this is a really great explanation and uh, thanks for these recommendations. I think that allows members of Movendi International then to say, here we can do some work, right? We can do some outreach to uh, the healthcare providers. We can do some work to uh, work with patient organizations and we can do advocacy work uh, towards our policymakers. Great. So with this, uh, Tim, you have given us, uh, I, as I have summarized now, I think a really nice agenda. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, for this conversation today. Uh, as you said in the beginning, it's not an easy topic, um, but I think you've done a great job explaining it to me and I hope to our listeners. So thank you so much, Tim, um, for this report and for this podcast conversation. Oh, it was a lot of fun, and hopefully I haven't taken a complicated uh, problem and made it worse, but uh, hopefully it's it's uh, understandable, and, and it was great working with the, the team, and, uh, you know, in particular, uh, you know, in Sweden, Sven Andreasen is a physician who does a lot of uh, treatment uh, and alcohol uh, treatment, and then and Frida Dankhart, again, is a vascular physiologist, so these would also be uh, really great people to have uh, maybe if you do follow-up podcasts. Happy to do that. Thank you so much, Tim. Uh, take okay. care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Big thanks to Dr. Tim Namey for taking the time to talk in-depth about alcohol and blood pressure and what societies, lawmakers, health systems and people can do about it. This podcast episode is part of Movendi International's larger work to support an evidence-based approach to protecting more people from alcohol harm. In the show notes, we share resources relating to the report itself and the topics we touched upon in the conversation. Your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics and guests is most welcome. We really enjoy hearing from listeners about what you think about the topics and episodes, what went well, what we can do better and everything in between. 
You can find my contact details in the show notes, so please feel free to reach out. If you like our work with the Algol Issues podcast, please subscribe, please leave a comment, rate our show and spread the word. In this way, you help more people to find this podcast. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino and Kristina Sperkova. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for tuning in. Stay well and safe and talk to you soon. <music>